Amen. If you have your Bibles, go with me to Acts chapter 4. Acts chapter 4. We've been in a series called Church on Fire, looking through the book of Acts. Today concludes this eight-week beginning as we've looked at this major first section. We're going to take about a five-week hiatus as we dive into the Christmas series. And we'll come back around January 5th and we'll pick up where we left off in the book of Acts. We will be diving in Acts all throughout 2020. It's going to be awesome. Uh, for Christmas, our Christmas series is called Christ the King. We're going to be looking at the incarnation of Christ next week. We'll be looking at the mission of Christ on, uh, on December 8th as our We Believe celebration, as we burn our church note, because this week we're writing our last debt payment check. Praise the Lord. And then December, you can praise that. And then on uh, the 15th of December, we're looking at the humility of Christ. And then on the 22nd, our hymns and communion Sunday, uh, all Christmas hymns and, and our fa family communi communion Sunday, uh, we're going to be looking at uh, the supremacy of Christ. And then we'll have a Christmas Eve service on December 23rd. We have one at 3.30, one at 5 o'clock. encourage you to be engaged. And uh, I really encourage you, if you have time on Sunday night, December 15th, to be here at 5.30 for our Christmas concert. It is amazing. It's going to be a lot of fun. Uh, it'll be awesome. So be engaged in that. Acts chapter 4 is where we're at. Let me, let me ask you if you recognize any of these names. William Carey, David Brainerd, Jim Elliott, Adoniram and Ann Judson, Bill Wallace, John and Betty Stam, Lottie Moon, George Lyle. Who are these people? Missionaries. But before they were known to be missionaries, they were just ordinary people. They were folks like you. Folks who had jobs. Folks who grew up in communities. Folks who had family, normal, everyday, ordinary people. You see, God uses ordinary people to proclaim an extraordinary Savior. When you look at Scripture, we're reminded a little bit of the theme of Scripture, and I like to draw us together often when it comes to Old Testament and New Testament and how we piece these things together. We're reminded at the beginning of creation Genesis 1 and 2, God creates all things, He makes all things, He puts man and woman, forms them together, puts them in a, in a marriage, and, and they have freedom, and everything's perfect and beautiful. Then comes Genesis 3, and that, that snake comes in and, and lures, tempts Adam and Eve, and Adam and Eve rebel against God, and they sin. And at that moment, God's perfect, good, and gracious creation all falls. That's why it's called the fall in terms of doctrine. The fall, when, when, when they sin, death enters the world and death kills everything in the world. Everything becomes broken. Our relationship with creation is broken. Our relationship with ourself is broken. Our relationship with others is broken. And our relationship with God is broken. Death comes. So every person born from Adam and Eve are born into death. And from that moment, God begins to resurrect his creation. This idea of resurrection floats throughout the whole theme of the Bible. You see resurrection take place in several parts, ultimately landing us to Jesus Christ, who resurrects 
to life, that God brings him back to life. And that is exactly what God is doing with the earth, with the world. He is bringing life to death. And if you are someone who knows Christ today, you know the life that you have in Christ. That though we were dead in our sin, born into sin, lost and hopeless, because of our repenting and belief in the gospel of Jesus Christ, we are saved and we become sons and daughters of God. And God brings us to new life and promises, as we just sang, that when he comes, our souls and our bodies will be resurrected and rejoined together. And this idea flows throughout the whole Bible because it says that God is our authority, that God is the boss, and there's no rivalry in the face of who God is. There's no power and no authority who can stand up to God because he's God. It's in, within this context that we begin to read today, Acts chapter 4, and this is what it says. Read with me. We'll, we'll go through the first four verses, and then we'll stop for a second. Luke writes, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, while they were speaking to the people, the priests, the captain of the temple police, and the Sadducees confronted them. Now remember, Pastor Matt preached last week. Peter and the apostles had just healed a man who was born lame. He was born that way. Everyone knew who he was and knew how he was. And they had just done this incredible miracle, and they had done it in Jesus' name. And it was causing all these people, curiously, coming around, saying, what has happened? What's going on? Look what they've done. Look at this power they have. And we pick up, and while they're doing this, it's as, almost as if these, these ruling people are watching. Remember, we talked about how the early church were gathering in private in the homes and in public at the temple. And notice who confronts them. It says the priests, the captain of the temple police... So they've, they've had their eyes on these guys who were preaching who Jesus was and they were causing a ruckus and they were, they were causing people to start following them. And it says the Sadducees confronted them because they were annoyed that they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. These people are preaching of Jesus' resurrection and the leaders of this, of this place, this city, are intimidated by it. Look at verse 3. So they seized them and they took them into custody until the next day since it was already evening. So they arrested them, put them in jail to wait a trial the next day. But many of those who heard the message believed. And the number of the men came to about 5,000. So remember, when I'm talking about the world has fallen and it's in death and it's in rebellion against a good creator God, We've got to know that the world and the enemies of the world, the, 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 the uh, Satan's crew, they stand in opposition to who Jesus is and what Jesus stands for. And anyone that trusts in Jesus, that lives under his name, are marked as troublemakers. I just want you to know, you are marked as a troublemaker in our society. Maybe you don't feel like it yet. Maybe you're starting to feel like it. But throughout church history, Christians have been marked as troublemakers. And we see it here today. And, and so when we talk about the world, we're talking about the culture, we're talking about this, this whole system of evil that's aimed at stomping out and pushing out God for everything. So I've got three things that I want to share with you today. First, the world may oppose the gospel, 
but it cannot stop the gospel. The world may oppose the gospel, but it cannot stop the gospel. Peter and John are here, and they've been arrested, and the man who's just been healed is with them. And notice who shows up, the Sadducees. These people are kind of like the, the ruling elite, uh, wealthy aristocrats, politically in- integrated with, with the Romans in government. They want the power. They had their own beliefs, and they certainly didn't believe that Jesus rose to life. They believed Jesus was dead and gone, and he should stay dead and gone, and anyone that tried to follow him should get out and shut up. That was their idea. And, and they were angry because now, here, here are these, these groupy ragtag people preaching about Jesus' resurrection, and they're not just preaching it. People are actually starting listen, to, to listen and, and respond, and, and they're beginning to follow, and, and they're beginning to multiply across the city, and and. And they're getting larger and larger. And so those who hold the power begin to become threatened by what's taking place, intimidated even. So I've got two quick truths here underneath this idea that the the world may oppose the gospel, but it cannot stop the gospel. First, the gospel brings opposition. The gospel brings opposition. What got them in trouble? Preaching of Jesus. Preaching that he rose to life. It's not that Peter was announcing Jesus' resurrection. It's not that he was just saying, hey, he rose. It's that he's actually preaching it and calling people to turn away from their religion and submit now to the way of Christ. He's been preaching it. And the Sadducees saw this as problematic to their authority, and they desired to push it out. When it comes to the Christian message, opposition comes with the territory. We know there's always possibility for opposition and even persecution. Jesus, think about this. Jesus says in John 15, he says, If the world hates you, understand that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. However, because you are not of the world, but I have chosen you out of it, the world hates you. He goes on to say, If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. But they will do all these things to you on account of my name, Jesus says, because they don't know the one who sent me. What an indictment, Jesus says. When they persecute you in my name, they don't know God. When they persecute Jesus, they are pushing out God. Jesus also says, think about this, in the Beatitudes, whose Beatitudes are beautiful, right? Matthew 5, we learn about these these great things about meekness and all these things that are characteristics of God's people. Well, the last one of the Beatitudes in Matthew 5.10 says, Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. Think about that idea, persecuted for righteousness. We as Christ's people sit in the righteousness of Jesus. Not our own righteousness. we're, We're sinners. We sit in the righteousness of Jesus, and blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness. For the kingdom of heaven is theirs. Jesus says, if you follow me, they will oppose you. They will persecute you. The name of Jesus will bring you trouble. And it's the name of Jesus and his resurrection that gets these guys in trouble here. But though the gospel brings opposition, opposition provides opportunity. Opposition provides opportunity for us 
and for the early church in the book of Acts. When you see in the book of Acts, when persecution comes, the church flourishes, the gospel flourishes. Look what happens in verse 4. These guys have just been arrested, they're thrown in jail, and verse 4 says, Many of those who heard the message believed, and the number of the men came to about 5,000. Despite them being thrown in jail, the gospel goes forth. Notice the number of people who believe. The number of men alone is 5,000. This does not include women and children. So 5,000 more people respond to the gospel and believe Christ. John Stott said it this way, you can arrest the apostles, but not the gospel. You can't stop the gospel. It goes forth. Opposition gives us an opportunity to share. You can arrest, the government can arrest you, but it can't stop the gospel. Countries can take all the Bibles they want, put them in the city, and burn them, but you can't stop the gospel. Church history has shown us of huge authoritarian leaders who've tried to stomp out Christianity, but it just flourishes because you can't stop the gospel. Because behind the gospel is a God who loves the world, is a God who loves you, and will stop at nothing to get the gospel to you, to give you the opportunity to repent and believe. I, th I wonder, when we think about this idea of opposition to the gospel, so many of us don't ever get to experience opposition to the gospel because we're so afraid of sharing the gospel. And we've been in this whole who's your one thing. We're supposed to be praying for our one and sharing our one and, and putting orange dots on the sign out there whenever we get to share with our one. And I wonder if we've already forgotten our call to share the gospel with the one. We're still praying for our one. Or are we scared? Are we afraid because Satan's got us in such a fear of captivity that, that we're afraid to share because we're afraid they're going to oppose us? We should be obedient to sharing. Secondly, the world may doubt you, but it must not persuade you. The world may doubt you, but it must not persuade you. Look at verse 5. The next day, their rulers, elders, and scribes assembled in Jerusalem with Annas the high priest... Caiaphas, John, Alexander, and all the members of the high priestly family. This is known as the, the Sanhedrin. There's about 71 people who've gathered together with, with Annas the high priest, which that name is just in honor. Caiaphas is the real high priest here, and he's the son-in-law of, son of, of uh, uh, Annas. Now listen, those two guys are the same two guys who were present at the trial and crucifixion of Jesus Christ. Those two guys had a major hand in seeing Jesus crucified on the cross and put to death. And here stands two more people who were Jesus followers, who were Christ followers, right in front of them going, we thought we took care of this guy. We thought we killed this guy. And here are these crazy people who's out here proclaiming that he rose to life. And there's people who really believe in this garbage. And they're put on trial. Look what happens, verse 7. After they had Peter and John stand before them, they began to question them. And here's the question, by what power or in what name have you done this? And we get to Peter's defense. Look at verse 8. Then Peter was filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, what does this mean? Does this mean, you might be thinking, wait a second, I thought, I thought they were already filled with the Spirit. Does this mean that like he's getting refilled with the Spirit? No, this doesn't mean that. This simply means that Peter and John understood that their life belonged to God, 
That Jesus said, wait on the helper, the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit was given, and they really believed the Holy Spirit was actually the helper Jesus meant. Like they really believed that the Holy Spirit was important to everyday life. The way they walked, the way they depended, the way they prayed, the way they looked for opportunities, the way they tried to, to give a defense, the way they discerned. They were so dependent on God and walked so much with Jesus, they were waiting for the Spirit to speak through them. They had confidence because of the helper in them. And I wonder if we've forgotten the power of the helper that God's given us in everyday life. We have the helper in us. He, he goes on to say, he says to them, in the Holy Spirit, rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today about a good deed done to a disabled man, by what means he, has, he was healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, now this is the third time, and, and Justin acts that Peter has thrown the blame on them. You people who say you're God's people, you crucified God's Savior. You crucified your own Messiah. You crucified, whom you crucified, and whom God raised from the dead. So he's, there he is preaching the resurrection before the Sanhedrin. By his name, by, by him, this man is standing here before you healthy. This Jesus is the stone rejected by you builders, which has become the cornerstone. There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to people by which we must be saved. Notice what's happening here. The apostles are, are put before them. Their attempt to squash them out has only led to Peter giving a defense where he actually shares the gospel. To, uh, the gospel. Opportunity. Uh, opposition leads to opportunity. He shares the gospel here, and they are trying to make them doubt. You need to shut up. You need to just don't believe these things. And they're trying to persuade them to get on board with their leadership. And they can't. And Peter tells them these two things. He says, look, guys, if you want to know, look at this guy. He says, see the evidence of Jesus. You see the man standing here with us. How else can you explain this, he says. Look at him. He's right here. You knew him to be disabled. You knew him to be lame from birth. We can't do this in our own power. It's only by the name of Jesus that he stands here because the power of the resurrection belongs in him. The power of new life. The power to take sin and turn back its course. The power to take death and roll back the curse of sin and to roll back the, death, uh, the curse of death belongs to Jesus alone. That God is resurrecting life. He is the one who brings new life and heals people. By this man, by him, this man is standing before you healthy. Look what God has done, he says. You know, all of us, if you're a Christian here, have seen evidences of God's grace in our own life and Jesus' work in our own life. Even if you're not a Christian, I mean, even if you're not a Christian, you go outside and you look at the beautiful fall leaves and you see just how creation alone tells the gospel story. How right now fall rolls in and death comes as, as leaves fall and turn colors and die and the trees become empty. And how the coldness of winter sets in where it's cold and everything's dead, the grass and the trees and everything. But how springtime comes and new life buds 
and the resurrection of summer comes, and it's beautiful again. Even creational, you go lay in the field and look up at the stars, and you can see the beauty of God's creation. God is screaming His glories across our creation. But even more than that, He's screaming His glories in your own created body. The way we can see, the way we can think, the way we can listen. God is screaming through the 80 miles of veins that exist in your own body. And that I can wiggle my toes right now and you not even know it. They're going pretty fast. I don't know how I'm doing that, guys. It's crazy. God is amazing. But even more so that he saw us in our dead state, in our rebellion, in our sin, chasing after what we want and didn't leave us there. He pursued us. He loved us so much to make a way for us to be redeemed, to be bought back and purchased back. And that is where we don't only see the evidence of Jesus, we see uh, he, he calls us to believe the exclusivity of Jesus. The exclusivity of Jesus. Now, here's a very important doctrine of the church that we must believe. Now, now before we get there, Peter here brings up another Old Testament text. He points back to Psalm 118, 22, this cornerstone text where he says, By him, uh, this Jesus is the stone rejected by you builders, which has become the cornerstone. Peter here highlights what David says. David is pointing to that Jesus is the cornerstone, that he will be rejected by God's people, the Israel, uh, the, the Israel people, that he will be rejected. And, but here, what Peter is saying, David prophesied that Jesus will come. And when you reject Jesus, you're rejecting Yahweh. This is what, what Peter says in front of them. He says, though you are reject, you've rejected Jesus, you've killed Jesus, you've not only done that to Jesus, in doing so, you've rejected Yahweh. And if you remember, Jesus says, they will do these things in my name. The reason they do them is because they don't know the one who sent me. So here Peter is indicting them on these texts that they know very well, showing them that they are facing judgment. And he's heavy-handedly putting it out there. But then he says, There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to people by which we must be saved. This is the great text. That we understand that there is no other name that people are saved. Spurgeon says that the, about this that there's a negative truth and a positive truth. The negative truth is there is no salvation outside of Christ. It's negative. The positive truth is there is salvation in Jesus Christ. But it's in Christ and Christ alone. And, and really, when we talk about Jesus being the only way, we're really only affirming what the Old Testament has already told us. Peter affirms what the Old Testament God of Israel believed. What's the first commandment? You shall have no other gods before me. But there is no one, no, no one else. To Israel, this was very important. Israel's God would not let them show honor to the gods of other nations because they were all false idols. I just finished reading through the book of Kings. And in the book of Kings, you've got all these uh, evil kings, some good kings, but these evil kings who put up with the worship of idols among God's people. Sure, you can worship that idol. Sure, you can. As long as, like, at the end of the day, you love God, you can have your way too. And I, I feel like that's a lot of how, how we live in America. 
a lot of people who kind of want it their way and want God. And that's not, that's not right. The, the good kings that were honored were the ones who, who, quote, tore down the altars, smashed the sacred pillars, and chopped down the Asherah poles. Those are the kings that God honored. The ones who destroyed all things, set aside all things that were idols, that they gave worship and honor to, and they fully surrendered open-handedly to the God of Israel. And this is what Peter affirms. He just affirms that there is salvation in no one else. And our culture is working overtime to try to convince you that there's multiple paths to get to heaven. Try to convince you that, that, that no matter who you worship, they all lead to the same God. Our culture is working hard to, to, to even, there's this new, you know, this kind of new idea that really whatever you believe, as long as you have some sort of faith, then, then you're fine, you're going to make it to heaven. Even if you create your own kind of religion in your own head, you know what, who are you to say anything to me about that? Like if I sat here and said, hey, you know, the way that, uh, that I believe I can go to heaven is if I eat a tub of of uh, ice cream every night, which I almost do, and, and I stole like 10 TVs and gave $10 to someone, then I can go to heaven. Well, our culture says, well, if that's what you believe, then I should respect that. That's craziness. No, it's not the case. There's salvation in no one else. And, and our culture is working hard to sell you on this idea. But I want you to know, I don't, I don't care if their name is, is Buddha, Joseph Smith, Oprah Winfrey, Allah, or Alan. There's no salvation in no one else. Only in Jesus Christ are we saved. It's only in Him, and it's only because of Him. Salvation is found in no one else. There is no other ground in which we trust but the name of Jesus. And so if you're here today, and you're searching, and you're looking for a path, looking for a plan, looking for some sort of hope in this world, I want you to know it's all found in the name of Jesus. That we sit here today, I mean, think about this. how crazy would we look if we didn't really believe what we do? We are gathered here. Where else do you just gather to sing songs? You could do that at a concert. You could do that at a bar probably. No, we do it here. And if we're not sold on this Jesus, if we're not all in on this Jesus, then it's pointless to come to this. We do it because of the grace of God given to us in Christ. Hebrews 7.25 says, He is able to save completely those who come to God through Him. To save completely. Listen, I, I'm someone who knows my sin. I know my rebellion. I know my brokenness. And to know that God has completely saved me, man, I don't have a lot going for me. But I sure do have a great Savior. An extraordinary Savior. As an ordinary man who gets to claim an extraordinary Savior. Praise the Lord. See, the world may try to doubt you. They may try to doubt you. But they must not persuade you to follow them. We must stand firm on the solid ground of Jesus Christ. Number three, the world may intimidate you, but it must not silence you. The world may intimidate you, but it must not silence you. We're going to start with verse 13. We're going to go through 22, and then we'll be done. Verse 13, when they observed the boldness of Peter and John... And realized that they were uneducated and untrained men. Notice there, they observed the boldness in these guys, but they were uneducated and untrained men. Uneducated and untrained. There's nothing fancy about these guys. Those guys used to be fishermen, 
Who do they think they are standing up here? Look at them in this boldness. I can't believe they just did this under the name of Jesus. And they see them and they're amazed. And it says, and they recognize that they had been with Jesus. What a sweet recognition. Uh, recognition. When people know that you've been with Jesus. People know you're walking with Jesus. You're walking in his spirit. You're unafraid of opposition. You're walking boldly in the spirit of God, knowing what he's called you to do, open-handedly available to do whatever God asks, whenever God asks it. What confidence. You know, when I'm, when I'm struggling, when I'm the weakest is when I lack the confidence in the Savior. When I try to put more confidence in me, it fails every time. But our confidence is to be in the Savior. It says verse 14, And since they saw the man who had been healed standing with them, they had nothing to say in opposition. After they ordered them to leave the Sanhedrin, they conferred among themselves, saying, What should we do with these men? For an obvious sign is, has been done through them, clear to everyone living in Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But so that this does not spread any further among the people, let's threaten them against speaking to anyone in this name again. Now this is an interesting part because we're asking, how does Dr. Luke see inside of that conversation? Well, people believe that one of the guys who was among those groups who had the conversation, a guy named Gillian, was saved out of that and became a Christian later on and told them what they talked about. That they had this meeting where they're like, we clearly see something, see evidence of something, and we can't put can't figure it out, but let's just tell them to shut up. Verse 18, so they called for them and ordered them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. Peter and John answered them, whether it's right in the sight of God for us to listen to you rather than to God, you decide, for we are unable to stop speaking about what we have seen and heard. After threatening them further, they released them. They found no way to punish them because the people were all giving glory to God over what had been done. For this sign of healing had been performed on a man over 40 years old. Two final things you see here. First, our authority is Jesus. And second, our allegiance is to Jesus. Our authority is Jesus. And our allegiance is to Jesus. Here, Peter and John are commanded not to speak again in Jesus' name. Don't do it again, they say. They see that they're uneducated, untrained. Something's got a hold of them, something we can't explain, and it's, we need to stomp it out, so quit saying it. And you see this example of how to engage in biblical civil disobedience. How do we engage in biblical civil disobedience? We certainly are called to honor government. We have an obligation to the state an obligation to honor God and to by, by honoring our elected officials. We pray for our president and we pray for our vice president and pray for Republicans and Democrats. We, we, we pray for our mayor. We pray for these things. It's very important. And we do the best we can to honor and obey. But how do we, how do we understand, though we have an ob obligation to them, we have an even greater obligation to God? That our citizenship, while temporarily here, is ultimately in heaven. Numbered among God's people. We are building God's kingdom on earth. And we see things like this really taking shape in our culture today. More so than, than previous years in the last maybe 50, 60 years. Or even 100 years. 
We see this idea of, of Christian celebrities being pushed out and, and corporations that hold the biblical values being kind of shoved aside like Chick-fil-A or Hobby Lobby. And, and you, you have this pressing in on biblical values that we hold dearly to and we believe intensely around like, like life and marriage and sexuality and gender, these things. And they continue to press. How do we continue to honor God and honor government while also making certain that we're certainly not disrespecting God? We have an obligation to Him before we do our government. Now, I will say that um, this isn't a Republican or Democrat thing. There's good Christian Democrats and there's good Christian Republicans. So, heads up, if you're someone who says, Democrat, I don't know how you can be a Democrat and be a Christian. Well, you can be. I don't know how, some of you say, I don't, I don't know how you can be a Republican and be a Christian. Well, you can be, okay? It's a little fuzzy here. We don't villainize each other. Uh, we honor each other as those who all are made in the image of God. But we care mostly about the gospel and our ability to share that freely, to share that holistically. We share it evidently, and we share it in every opportunity we get. But when it comes to silencing us, we must not be silent about the things that God is not silent about. We must speak truth while we also love others. Remember, showing love to people is the way of Jesus. Christians, showing love to people is the way of Jesus. Can I get some more amens, please? Can I get a louder amen? There's a bunch of mean, nasty Christians that should shut their mouths. I'm not even certain they're Christian. They lobby around under the name of Jesus, speaking evil against people because they disagree with them or because they're living in sin. Jesus goes to the sinner. He shows them love first. He builds a relationship strong enough to bear the weight of the truth he's got to give them, and he gives them the truth. So we respect people, we love people, and we honor people. Now, when the government comes closing down on us, we decide and discern how the Holy Spirit would allow us to live and allow us to speak the truth boldly in his name. We cannot and must not shut our mouths about Jesus. Our belief in the gospel of Jesus and what he stands for, we always know that he's our authority. And we will stand face to face with him one day to give an account. And then finally, the allegiance part. We our allegiance is to Jesus alone, and might I add, only to Jesus. It isn't to this world, it isn't to this country, it isn't to the Democrats, it isn't to the Republicans. Our allegiance belongs to Jesus alone. And it's Him that we will meet. He is the image of the one true God. He is the maker, the creator, the preserver, the deliverer. We're about to enter into Christmas season where we are reminded that God, our God, did not just see us in our sin and leave us there. And God did not just send some people to speak to us, God stepped down himself. God stepped into our world as his son. God came and lived a life we could not live. He died the death we deserve. He gave himself, offered himself as a sacrifice for our sin so that we might be ransomed back, so that we might be loved and redeemed and resurrected one day. Jesus did these things for, his, for God's glory and for our benefit. And God calls us, each one of us, each one of you, every man and woman who lives under the name of Jesus, 
to be his witnesses, to be faithful witnesses, no matter the situation, no matter the circumstance, no matter where he calls you, because our allegiance is to him, not anyone else. And I, listen, when you hear the word allegiance, you might be thinking, I'm supposed to be, a, you know, I'm supposed to live and surrender to Jesus, not America. I don't want that. I think, I think what we struggle with here in the American dream world is I think our allegiance is more to ourselves than it is to Jesus. I think you and I, who've been inoculated with the gospel and the good things of America and the benefits of money, I think our allegiance is more to ourselves. We're only willing to go so far with Jesus. We're only willing to give so much for Jesus. We're only willing to do this much or that much or serve this much or, or, or I'm, only, uh, I'm only willing to read the Bible this much because, you know, it cringes on my time or I'm just so busy or I've got my kids' sports or I've got my, I got my work thing and I've got this trip with the guys and I've got the whatever. We're, we are aligned with ourselves more than we're aligned with Jesus and we need to repent you see, the way of Jesus is to say, Lord, here's my open hands, here's my available life, and here's my obedient heart. We need to start living like the early church lived. When you see them at the end of Acts 2, with their hands open, they had all things in common, they understood all their possessions, all their land, all their property belonged to God and God, if you want me to give it, I'll give it. God, if you want me to share it, I'll share it. God, if I can meet a need, I'll meet it. God, here's my life. Here's my voice. If you want me to proclaim your truth, Jesus, I will, I will do it by your spirit. Here I am. I'm available, Jesus. I'm, I, I serve under your allegiance. I belong to you. I am yours. We must not keep silent about what we have in Christ. And we must not keep our mouths closed and our things to ourselves, we must make all of our life available for God to use. Because God wants to use ordinary people to proclaim an extraordinary Savior. And only God knows how He wants to use you for His glory. Dr. Uh, Adrian Rogers, is a, he was a legendary pastor kind of in our network of churches. He was the long-term pastor at Bellevue Baptist Church in Memphis, Tennessee. And uh, on one Sunday, he, he looked at his congregation of more than 7,000 people. And he, he asked them, how many of you in here graduated valedictorian or salutatorian in your high school class? A bunch of hands went up, scattered across the audience. He said, I want you to stand up. They stood up. A bunch of people started clapping across the, across the sanctuary. He, he goes on and he says, now if you were an all-American athlete, please stand keeps going. Please stand if you were a went to college on a scholarship, if you were homecoming queen, if you graduated with honors. And he goes on through a list of accolades. And when it was all done, about a third of the 7,000 people were uh, standing. And then he says, he says this, well, I have good news and I have bad news. The good news is that God can use you too. The bad news is that you are not his first choice. You see, church, God uses ordinary people like you and like me with ordinary stories and ordinary homes and ordinary families. Those missionaries I listed off, they were ordinary people who, who lived with an 
open hand and available life and an obedient heart. God, if you were to call me to go to the nations, God, I'll go. Hudson Taylor, I named my son after Hudson, missionary to China. China is a changed place today because of the missionary work of Hudson Taylor. Jim Elliott gave his life for a people group. The people, the, the, the Indian that killed Jim Elliott travels around preaching the gospel today. Ordinary people. Adnaram, Ann Judson, a husband and wife who gave their life for missions. For the Bur Burmese people. Ordinary people. And not only that, you see, gosh, Moses was a felled prince in a desert and God called him to deliver a nation. David was a teenage shepherd boy who God used to defeat the giant Goliath and became king. Nehemiah was a servant cupbearer to a king who God used to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. Amos was a sheep breeder and God used him to prophesy in the face of Israel's rebellion. Mary was a teenage girl when God called her to be the mother of the Messiah. And Simon Peter would have died an ordinary fisherman hadn't been for Jesus Christ saving him, calling him to preach the gospel and establish the church. We sit here because ordinary people proclaimed an extraordinary Savior. God wants to use you for his glory. He wants to use you to proclaim the truth of Jesus. And I wonder today, and I, I, I believe this because I've been praying this, and I believe God in prayer. I believe God in prayer. I believe across this room, God is calling many of you. He's calling some of you to be missionaries. He's calling some of you to be pastors. He's calling some of you to serve the church in greater ways than you're already serving the church. He's calling some of you to give it all for his mission, wherever that might be. And I just wonder if, if, if there might be some here today who say, you know what, if God is calling me, or if God wants to call me, or if God might call me, I just want him to know that I, I have open hands, that I have an available life, and I have an obedient heart.